Hey everybody, thank you for checking out the Broke Down Podcast. I am your host, Jonathan. This is episode 69. I've got a great guest this go-round, Chris Funk. You may know him as the guitarist from the great, great band, The Decemberists. Chris has a new solo album coming out that's outstanding, and we'll get into that. And of course, he's a deadhead, so there will be plenty of Grateful Dead talk ahead too. First up, let me remind you that the Broke Down Podcast is a part of Osiris. Osiris Media connects you with the art and music that you love through podcasts, videos, and live streams. Last week, the great podcast Politics of Truth, hosted by Bob Crawford of the Avid Brothers, talked to the Grateful Dead's Mickey Hart about activism and the healing power of music. Check that out and so much more at OsirisPod.com. I want to tell you about a couple things before we get into the interview. Bandcamp, which you may have sussed is unquestionably my favorite digital music platform and also an excellent means to acquire physical media like records or tapes or cds or whatever if those are your kind of thing directly from independent artists they are during this COVID scene doing a great thing for artists twice now and at least two more times to come bandcamp is waiving all of its already low platform fees for every purchase on the first friday of the month that means on friday june 5th as well as friday july 3rd Every penny that you spend on Bandcamp goes directly to the artist whose music you're purchasing. They did this back in May and I think April, and each time it's raised quite a bit of money for artists. Now, some artists are launching special releases on those days, so keep an eye out and get your PayPal ready. I spend the month building a wish list on Bandcamp, so I know exactly what I want to pull the trigger on when the day arrives. If you want recommendations beyond what I've already given you in this show through the years, check out my Bandcamp page. I'm not selling anything, I'm just a listener. So there you can see all the things that I've picked up over the years at bandcamp.com slash rojimmy. Okay, so now I want to talk about a couple of killer albums that I've copped lately. Uh, The first is Stonegrass. Stonegrass is Matthew, Doc Dunn, and Jay Anderson. and Together they put a hard grooving slab of brown acid guitar and drum freakouts heavy, properly stony tunes that get right into and get you out of your head. The cover is by Broke Down Pod friend Daryl Norson, which captures the lay down on the grass zones that the record delivers, and it is available at cosmicrangerecords.bandcamp.com. The next is the latest album by Woods. Woods have been around since the aughts, and back then they were putting out a great record every single year, making my top 10 list each time back when I did those things. After a little time off, Justin and Jarvis got the call to produce and compose for this stunning Purple Mountains record that came out last year with uh, the late David Berman. And now Woods is back with their own uh, latest album entitled Strange to Explain. True to form yet ever expanding, the record sounds familiar to fans but fresh with strong melodies and lyrics. And this is one of my favorite bands of the last 20 years and you should really check them out. The record is available at woodsist.com or at woodsist.bandcamp.com for the digital release. Now, I feel like I'm pushing a lot of stuff on you guys, uh, so I want to make sure to tell you that Broke Down Pod takes no advertisement compensation. If I recommend a record to you, it's because I choose to do it. It really is my recommendation. That's how we roll here at Broke Down Pod. Okay, so... This week, as I said, my guest is Chris Funk. I've been a fan of the Decemberists for a long, long time. 
Probably back sometime before I first saw them in concert at the very first Vegas Festival in 2005. I thought then, and still do, that they were a great band with great songs and musicianship and a fun stage presence, and I began collecting their records in earnest. In 2010, that collector streak paid off when they released a single of their new album, The King Is Dead. The B-side to that single? Row Jimmy. So many of you have guessed that that particular dead song is a favorite of mine, and Wow, to hear a band I love covering it was quite a treat. Anyways, flash forward to now. I'm thrilled to present this conversation with Chris Funk. Chris has a new solo record out, which you can get at chrisfunk.bandcamp.com, and you can also get it directly via Jealous Butcher Records, which is jealousbutcher.com. Allow me to remind you that you can follow my Twitter or Instagram at BrokeDownPod. We're also on Facebook, if that's your thing. Of course, you should subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and please leave a review if you like the show. It helps other people find the show, helps us grow. You can find the full show notes on my website, brokedownpodcast.blogspot.com. So, here we go. So you guys, the Decemberists covered uh, Grateful Dead, and I want to come back to this. I don't want to start with this necessarily. You covered Grateful Dead on on a single, like the B-side of a single a while back, which is great and totally excited me as a a fan of the Decemberists and of Grateful Dead. But I don't want to say I forgot about it, because of course I didn't forget about it. But I still, I never really like took it as more than a one-off notion until it was a few weeks ago on the, uh, one of those... um, online things it was on nugs.net nugs tv uh, yeah they're doing a tribute to garcia hunter and you did the weirdest track of the night um what, <laughs> oh cool good <laughs> it really was uh what and they were and there was some competition uh for what's become of the baby which <laughs> which i was i was floored by uh in the best way in the best way cool um, so i got a I'm going to start with that. Why that song? I mean, it makes sense. And especially as I've heard your new record now, it makes even a little bit more sense. But why, (laughs) why that song? Um, I think, so the call came through one of our managers. Um, and, um, I don't really fancy myself a singer. Um, but, I don't know. I thought maybe that was a way I could disguise my voice is to do something off of Aoxamoxa, which is like a a little bit more psychedelic feeling that record in its entirety. And a lot of the dead studio stuff is obviously not what they're known for, but they dabbled in disguising voices and things there. So, and what I've been working on at home during this whole COVID thing is working with modular synthesis. And um, so it's kind of like what, I had at the ready. I haven't been playing much guitar. Um, and I was like, what would work like modular? Like, could I cover all of this, the second side of Terrapin station on modular? I was like, that's going to take forever (laughs) to try to like reimagine orchestral arrangements and 
do it true to form. So I don't know. I just thought uh, that song is so weird and haunting. And I think Garcia is singing through like a Leslie uh, rotating speaker. And that made sense. That just sort of lit it off from there that it sounded like the sixties version of a vocoder or something. So I actually treated my vocals similar to his using a rotating um, effect and it kind of, it's droney also and modular synthesis tends to be a little droney too. So it, it just made sense. I was like, I don't know. They just, I just went for it and it had a lot of fun with it. It really worked. I think. Awesome. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that song is like super bizarre and there's these moments on those early dead records where they're using sound collage, you know, like at the, on the, um, which I, the other, it came up on, I don't listen to many of the dead's studio records, except with the exception of Terrapin station. Cause I love that record and um, Mars hotel. Cause I like the quality of those recordings. Um, but, uh, dark star quote unquote, the single came up like on one of my playlists. And I was like, they, did they try to fucking market dark star as a single? That's crazy. And at the end of it, there's this like banjo, it's probably Jerry playing banjo, but it, it's just like this sound collage moment. So, you know, there was a huge movement of um, the San Francisco San Francisco uh, tape library, which is and the beginning of modular synthesis was actually in tandem with what those guys were doing right down the street in Haight-Ashbury. So I don't know. Somehow it felt like it would be cool to do that way. And the dead, I, I think you can hear the dead reinterpreted um, in, in a million great ways that I enjoy, too, by people trying to stay true to form. But I was like, I don't know, let's try and stretch this a little bit and see where it goes and make it my own. Yeah, I think yeah, so, I think you. I'm not it saying off. I'm the only one that did that that night, but yeah. So <laughs> no, there were there me, were actually like, uh, a lot of great performances that night, but uh, uh, you're the only one I'm talking to today. So um. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I'm the I am the best. I'm the MVP of the evening. Thank you very much. No, it was it was <laughs> it was great, and uh, and so that that led to us talking uh, just a little bit uh, with the obvious question. Uh, oh, would you come and talk Grateful Dead? And you said absolutely. So. We will we will get further totally. into that, uh, but I, I want to the audience familiar with you and your background. Uh, I know you're from the Midwest originally, so it, yeah, in Indiana. I think I have that in my notes. Yeah, Indiana. Yep. I am. And um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, uh, when did you begin playing guitar? Did you start with guitar, or did you? No, I started. Um, my family was very involved in music from a young age. Music was pushed uh, on on me in a very what I describe, I guess, is a Midwestern way. So going to like Presbyterian church, but not the convention, not the church where you actually get really great as a musician. You know, my parents were like from Minnesota. So like church choir and that kind of stuff. And that's, I don't know anything about the Bible. It was just more about like going to church and being a dutiful Midwesterner um, than really (laughs) soaking up the gospel. (laughs) So they were always in choir. My dad was a great singer they were always excited about music. And then my high school had a really vibrant, um, music program, jazz and concert band program. So that was my start was just being a band nerd. And then, um, all the while just liking rock music as a kid, you know, and being, I I grew up in Valparaiso, which is about an hour from Chicago. We consider ourselves somewhat of a Chicago suburb, somewhat not. Um, so I had access to Chicago, you know, and started going into the city a lot and going to the Metro and the Cubby Bear and all these places and seeing music at a really young age in a place called Medusa's, which actually was like a kind of a punk rock juice bar dance club that also 
artists like from the industrial scene would play. So I ended up, I was probably hearing Al Jorgensen spin records, definitely saw wow. ministry play. So, um, I don't know. I, and my parents supported that and I started then eventually wanted to play guitar and I kind of came at it through new wave music and punk rock music. Um, so that, that's kind of my background. I, I, I bought a, I was able to get a guitar cause I said, well, I'll play it in jazz band. So I played that in the B band and played guitar that way, which was actually <laughs> a great way to learn to play guitar. Yeah. But all the while playing saxophone and just kind of being a disciple of public school band nerddom. <laughs> So that's, that's my comeuppance there. So tell me, tell me more about these clubs. Who who were you seeing in the uh, in the clubs? Other than you mentioned Al Jorgensen and Ministry, and I saw Ministry once on yeah. uh, Lollapalooza in the way way back, and it was yeah. it was it was awesome. It's it crazy, was, you know, the borderline yeah. not my thing, but it was it was still pretty rad, and I was familiar. But uh, yeah, who else did yeah. you see? I I this so I, I graduated high school in nineteen ninety. So this is like the four years previous in the eighties. Um, I mean, man, I saw, I would just go to the Metro all the time, which is across from Wrigley field. Cause my sister at the time lived a block, a couple blocks from there. Um, and I would literally just buy tickets to concerts and go. So, you know, smashing pumpkins were on the rise. Then, um, there's a, a Chicago punk band called naked Raygun. I must've seen play oh, yeah. 20 times. Um, Tons of blues, obviously, like really amazing blues artists too, because it was really easy to get into bars back then. And then we'd go down to Medusa's, which is near the Vic Theater, and you'd go dance to house music. And that was kind of just Chicago, or you'd go see jazz. And Chicago still has that quality to me of like people actually listen to jazz there, like young people. There's also this big house music scene still, it feels like, or dance music scene. At the time, I don't think I even understood what gay was, the concept of being gay <laughs> coming from kind of a conservative upbringing, but I was certainly dancing around a very um, African-American gay house experience, like looking back and it's, a, it's so fucking cool, you know, cool. it shaped me who I am and my politics and everything I think by sheer proximity. Um, so, it, so much music, you know, just crazy amounts of music and that was like in the first half of of growing up or sorry in the first half of the eighties. So like eighth grade through ninth grade, 10th grade. And somewhere along the line, I started listening to more roots rock and the dead kind of came into my life during that period of time too. kind of going backwards, you know, who we were already a, a huge entity, but I was a young person. So I didn't have any reference for that. I certainly, you know, my mom listened to Liberace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom was a classical music person, so I didn't get a lot of uh, Grateful Dead from her. Uh, but what? Uh, yeah. When did the when the rock band started coming in, and you were selecting and not just uh, going to whoever was playing because you could go? I mean, who who were you buying records from? There was this like re- you know, it was back in the day, you go to a record store, and there's a record store called Hegwish Records, which is near Gary, and it's a town called Merrillville. There's this guy there named Greg who looked like he was Dickie Betts or Dwayne Allman. <laughs> but <laughs> he, you know, he obviously subscribed to classic rock, but he also knew about all kinds of, I was, you know, into, um, you know, Husker Du and REM. And, and he would walk up with his giant belt buckle and, <laughs> and be like, you know, you like that? You should check out this band called The Smiths. And I'd be like, okay, cool. So it was just through that person and that contact that you could consume a lot of music and realizing that somebody, of that era, you know, this is like a period of time, which I still think happens where you sort of subscribe to a tribe. Um, 
it felt like that way even more probably because I was in high school. You're either like new wave or eventually there's all, but all the deadhead kids or whatever, or you're band nerd or you didn't listen to music. Um, that it felt like okay to sort of meeting that guy somehow a, a light bulb went off. I was like, yeah, I can listen to everything. You know, this guy's going to, this guy's like going to introduce me to everything. You know, it was an incredible place, uh, to be introduced to music. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, it's and, that the, uh, resource of just having somebody who can feed you music and connect dots for you that you might not have. I mean, you walk to a record store yeah. and if you don't know what to grab, you, you can be paralyzed by options. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd be curious to see like my daughter who's 13 set her loose in a record store and see if she could navigate it. I don't think she could, which is fine. You know, she's got a record store called Spotify now, (laughs) which is also cool. Yeah. I have a a teenager who is, you know, I have thousands of records and she's very carefully self-selecting anything but my record collection, which is fine because she's listening to something, but (laughs) Um, and as, there's, as it should be. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She can, she'll come back around hopefully maybe. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, she will. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, when did you move out West? Was it college? No, I, uh, moved out West. I, I was, uh, I dropped out of college and then I moved back to my hometown and worked at a folk music store called Front Porch Music oh, wow. that actually kind of changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, I remember moving home and my mom was like, you know, they're hiring for like a dishwasher at Shoney's. And I was like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta get out of this house. I gotta like, like, what am I going to do? I thought I was going to move into Chicago and just huff it out. I had no, no, I was just aimless. Um, and, uh, worked at this like folk music shop for three or four years. And that's where I learned to play mandolin and dobro and all the things I also play in the Decemberist now. And, learned a lot about folk music. And, um, then I just was like, I am going to move to Oregon (laughs) because I had this vision of Midwest me. That's going to be West coast me, which was, I'm going to, you know, ride mountain bikes and be in the mountains. And, um, I just threw a dart on a map and moved to Eugene, which is, you know, since this is a grateful dead podcast, I will say it is somewhat of a second or third home to the grateful dead, (laughs) which I didn't even really understand at the time. Yeah, distinct um, connections there at the dead time. People. Oh yeah, for sure. And still, you know, um, but yeah, I just moved, I just drove my van out and moved out there and made a lot of community and I had it in my head. I was going to move to the West coast and do music, which made no sense. You'd think you'd go to LA. <laughs> right. I moved, I moved to Eugene and then eventually Portland and it did work, but it wasn't very logical. I, I was pretty lost at that age, I'd say, but that was a good thing. It's okay to be lost and sort of you know, I well, mean, this is a like Grateful you, Dead uh, podcast, right? So you can, you can wander. <laughs> you made, you made all the right plays. I could tell you, I dropped out of college and I yeah. did work at a Shoney's for a minute after that. Um, so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you made the correct choice. No, and, no diss, <laughs> no diss. <laughs> hey, you know, like I, I, I ate there at the time too, you know, so, uh, but Barama. yeah, it's not a job I, I would recommend. Um, <laughs> The folk music yeah, store sounds way cooler. So that was pretty cool. I was very lucky to get a job there. Yeah. So you took your time, picked up the instruments while you were there, and said, "Well, what can I do with this?" And having a good musical I did, background. Yeah. It was, so. it was. Yeah. There was actually this really vibrant uh, music scene in my hometown that I sort of knew about. Um, and actually, that's kind of where I started hearing the Dead a lot was. 
these folk musicians who were in um, Valparaiso, like my friend John Dorado and this guy Jerry Short and Rick Watson and Ron Barney, these guys who are like the troubadours of the region. The region is like um, the steel belt of part of Indiana that is South Chicago, right? So it's all the steel mill. We call it the region, right? So they, <laughs> these guys would just play gigs all around the region. And I remember hearing those guys, and they played a lot of bluegrass. And there was a band called the Purple Cowboys that were like a psychedelic bluegrass band. They would, they you know, Olden in the Way was completely in their repertoire. I didn't know who Olden in the Way was. So it slowly like seeped in, you know, like hearing them play Friend of the Devil. I was like, oh, that's cool. And I really started to like bluegrass working at that shop and then realizing that Bluegrass was a huge part of the dead, you know, even though I, st- I actually started listen- really listening to the dead in high school and seeing shows and stuff. But I think that was kind of during that period of time, too, I started connecting a lot of dots of like the etymology or the the uh, the, the the deepness of Garcia and the dead and all of those things and how how they've spanned so much music and how big it was. So, yeah, yeah I mean, there's there's so many doorways into Grateful Dead that um you know, I, I, I've talked about it on the show a lot, probably, so I'll be brief. But, you know, I'm at bluegrass festivals talking to bluegrass artists, and they're all coming in through Old and in yeah. the Way. And I'm talking to other people, and they're like, oh, yeah. yeah. And then I got into bluegrass. I was listening to Grateful Dead. I saw this Old and in the Way record, and suddenly I'm a, I'm a bluegrass fan, you know. And uh, it's it's yeah, kind totally. of a two-way street, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, but, I mean, really the way I got into the dead was the the dead and the mid eighties, you know, as right. everybody knows, listening to this probably, or were a big cultural force. And in my high school, there was a friend of mine named Jamie Wyckoff. And I met her when she was in seventh grade in homeroom and she was a total punk rocker. And then at some point she got into the dead. So these kids that I was friends with and respected and looked up to, I think culturally, and also as friends were going on tour and I was like what does what does that even mean you're going on tour like what do you mean you're cutting class you're cutting weeks of class and doing this thing like what is this thing what is this great thing and um <laughs> she started making giving me uh tapes you know flowing me tapes from shows and eventually went to a show and started just seeing a ton of shows you know saw the dead play a bunch and Garcia band and Good. anything that I could see dead wise you know so it was really in high school I started listening to him so can you, uh, while we're concerts. on it, could, what was your first show? My first show um, would have been maybe the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. Okay. I'm trying to think of what year that would have been. And that might have been a Garcia show, actually, with Bob and Rob Wasserman opening up. I can't remember. Or it might have been like... Deer Creek, one of the Deer Creek shows in Indianapolis, which those were always awesome. That going down there was incredible. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember if it was Rosemont Horizon or Deer Creek. I don't remember, but I would go to all the Midwestern shows kind of from 87 through okay. when I left and then see shows out here, you know. So I th- I think I saw I definitely saw Brent Midland's last show at the World was called the World Theater in Tinley Park, Tinley Park so yeah. the Chicago gig. I saw Jerry's last show in Chicago. <laughs> oh wow! Chicago Chicago did him in, um, and was that the famous Deer Creek show that they stormed the gates uh, and the shut it down? Ninety five, uh, summer ninety five shows. Ninety five. So I went I went went back you know uh, then. 
saw the dead on the west coast a bunch moving out here um cool garcia band anytime they'd come through seen a lot of dead shows yeah i was like what dead shows have i seen i was like oh yeah i've seen a lot (laughs) awesome so yeah i it was like it was it was like a um a real thing in my high school to like consider yourself a deadhead and to be cool enough to be a deadhead and i was not cool enough to be a deadhead even though i probably seen the dead play (laughs) 20 times or, or more and um because these kids would like they'd go on tour you know and there was a another friend of mine from high school named mark mather he was a total tour rat he did he would go do the whole tour and drive in this like blue mustang or something wow um, and i would just like hang on every word of his stories you know i wanted to i wanted to go on tour i was just like how do you go on tour like how do you that was mind-blowing to me like how do you go on tour doesn't um, your mom get mad so realizing yeah totally <laughs> i was my mom would not have let me go on tour so i could go to buckeye was it Buckeye Creek or whatever in Ohio? I could, that was as far as I could get, you know. Yeah, that was <laughs> three uh, hours down to Indianapolis. <laughs> that, that was about my my trip in high school too. Was you know I could I could go to RFK, go down to Hampton. That's enough. And then after high school, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. yeah, it was a little more yeah. wide open. But um, wheels up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but. Jumping around, we're gonna we're gonna keep jumping around. So then you uh, you're in Portland when you met Colin and yeah. the Decemberists began to be a thing. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that is correct. I think it was um, ninety eight or ninety nine. I met him, and um, I was working at a um, booking and management company, and because um, I've always I was always doing sort of like music quote unquote music business jobs adjacent, never thinking I could make it as a musician. And he came into this to said agency and, um, had heard I played pedal steel guitar and he, his vision for the Decemberist was accordion, bass, drums himself and uh pedal steel. And he had me come play on the first EP and then eventually, and then I played on the next record and I was like, I'd be in the band. This is super cool. Nice. And, um, so, I, I, yeah, I'm really tempted, good. and and you know that I'm a fan, so I'm saying this out of out of, out of love, but also love of comedy. Did he think that that lineup was going to be successful? <laughs> that instrumental lineup was going to be successful because <laughs> it doesn't sound like one that no. would be. It clearly it's no. worked out, but <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, he, I think he famously jokes, or famously, if you like our band or have read that interview, um, that he, he thought we looked like some sort of bizarre tango band or country band you know um so no of course of course you don't think something's going to work out at all ever you can't imagine getting to do this for a living and where it's going to where it's going to take you um and at the time in portland i think you know the accordion and the pedal steel have well worked their way into indie rock now and i'm not claiming i'm the person that did it or were the people that did it but you know, our, maybe our contemporaries were listening to the same stuff we were at the time. Um, but Portland was a very different musical landscape. It was an incredible rock scene. Um, but indie rock looked and felt a lot different than what we were doing. Um, and you know, it kind of still baffles me that slim moon who ran kill rock stars records. And it was once again, running it right now, um, took a chance on us because the stuff he was putting out was like bikini kill, Sleater Kinney, you know, like really kind of gnarly 
uh, punk stuff, you know, post-punk or however you want to frame it, call it. Um, it didn't sound like the Decemberist is the point. So we were a bit of an anomaly, but I think the songs were good. You know, we play the same songs now and I think good songs find their way to people eventually if you hang in there and resonate with people. So Slim, Slim identified that in us and believed in us. Yeah, I think uh, songs definitely carry a lot and certainly a uh, Grateful Dead person would recognize that good writing gets you very far. Um, yeah, and, 100%. and yeah, you guys were very different from that scene and you also weren't really lining up with a lot of things that were going on in the East Coast. You know, there was the freak folk, acid folk kind of yeah. stuff resurging, if you will, out out yeah. in the east and you didn't really line up with that either no I, I can't blame anybody for wanting to grab a pedal steel player for your band i can't other people might <laughs> you know <laughs> so cool I, I respect that ambition well if you hear of a if you hear of a someone that can actually play it let let us know we're auditioning <laughs> <laughs> so uh it ain't me <laughs> I, I won't I won't make too much hay. You guys put out a bunch of records that are, in my opinion, great records. Everybody should be listening to them. Um, I, I've I've had Thank a you. lot of fun listening to them. Uh, they're they're one of the bands that I I can very easily share with my wife. That she she really likes to see them, and she's been mad that I've seen you guys play more than she has. Um, <laughs> in fact, when I she won tickets to the uh, Hazards of Love tour down in Charlottesville, and she couldn't go, so I went. Um, oh wow! Yeah, oh, nice. Yeah, and, <laughs> sorry, and, and, uh, sorry, wife. Sorry, Amy. Yeah, but it was it was that was like a life changing show to me. That was one of just like amazing concerts. Wow, you guys thanks. were really like expand slightly expanded lineup, additional singers, and just yeah. the delivering that music live is uh, it's. It's compelling and immense. And uh, on top of that, yeah. you guys have done more um, prog-sounding things. Um, yeah. I, kn- I know Colin is a songwriter extraordinaire here in the group, but talk to me about your, like, are you guys arranging together or where where are you fitting into this as a, yeah. as a composer? Yeah, I think the band, I mean, every record is different. Um, you know, starting with the early, early stuff, it, you kind of just would play your part and show up for Monday night rehearsal and you play your part and that becomes the part. And maybe Colin would have a slightly different vision for something, but it was very much just people kind of play their parts and it's like, okay, cool. And then as we got more money to make records, honestly, and have more time in the studio, you start to shape things more because that's what the studio becomes. It becomes at least in our case, it's like the, the moment where you can shape the sound and shape the, um, shape the sound in a, in a different way versus the live experience. Right. So picaresque was really the album where we finally had a, a real budget and real time to work on something and, um, worked with Chris Walla from death cab for cutie for the first time. And I started buying kind of all the instruments I wanted and couldn't afford. And there's a, that, that album really defined, I think what people, when they talk about the Decemberists and don't listen to much of the Decemberists, that's what they think of when they think of us, which is fair. You know? I can see that. <laughs> so like the Mariner's Revenge, is on, Mariner's Revenge is on that album, you know, mandolins, banjos, um, the songwriting evolved in a different way. I played Hurdy Gurdy on the record, so mm-hmm. kind of experimenting with more folk instruments. So 
point being like the contributions of every record is different. Um, and then eventually we all became more sophisticated with home recording, Colin included. So he started demoing stuff out a little bit more and shaping things out a little more, which is great because you can hear, you know, what the principal songwriter thinks where the song should go, you know? Right. So it's just different every record. And, and, um, then we've done records where that there's no demos, you know, that's been like, well, let's flip this on its ass and do the antithesis of the last record and come in with no ideas and see where that goes. So, um, you know, something like hazards of love, which if anybody hasn't heard it, it's, uh, it's definitely for lack of a better term, it's a folk opera or a rock opera. And it's roughly 45 minutes of music that is spun together. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of forward planning on Colin's part. And then once we got in the studio, a lot of refining of how parts could line up and how the narrative worked and how songs could segue in a believable way uh, to each other while trying to keep, we, we realized we're like, Oh my God, this entire record's in the key of D <laughs> like, should we change <laughs> something here? <laughs> so everybody's parts are different. It's, I always say it's a band of producers also, um, you know, people meaning people have great ideas in the band. Um, people contribute in different ways. You realize where your strengths are in the band. You realize how the band starts to operate and how you're going to just be productive and make art and not worry about getting your fingerprint on something, right? The The goal is to look at the room and feel the room and make sure the song is being served well. So it's so many years, it's difficult to say exactly where the contributions come from all the time beyond Colin, who's the person who always starts at the beginning of the song. So it'd be very strange at this point to bring in a chord progression to Colin and say like, why don't you try singing over that? Even though he's <laughs> recently said something like that. And I was like, I don't know, man, <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> it well, works. You've got some other outlets though. So uh, we could talk about those because uh, you've also, and you and uh, several of the other band members had another project called uh, Black Prairie. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that group. Black Prairie was, um, that was really, I myself and Nate, our bass player, started the group as a, as a moment to sort of dive into acoustic music. So American acoustic music, right? So like what Old in the Way or Garcia Grisman or dog music or whatever, except we're not, we can't play that level of music. So <laughs> it was just our moment to write in that idiom. And for me personally to play the dobro. So the six string lap dobro or the lap steel, some people call it. That was really the goal of that. And to play with some new people and people that were better than I was in that genre. So there's a guy named John Newfeld, who's a guitar player for a band called Jack Straw here. Um, from Portland, which is a, one of our mainstay bluegrass bands. And he's a total, you know, Django Reinhardt, Tony Rice shredder. So, and there was a woman wow. named Annalisa Tornfelt, who's a singer, and she's like an Alaskan fiddler, played bluegrass her entire life. And then we brought Jenny in from our group as well to play the accordion. So that's kind of how it started off. And it was instrumental music, and it was an exploration in that. And then, you know, Annalisa is a great singer, and it was kind of like, Hey, you should really try singing some songs. And she's like, no, I'm just enjoying playing instrumental music with you guys. So eventually by the last record we put out, it had a drummer, which is actually John, our December drummer. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, because that band would work anytime the December's weren't working, you know? So 
um, it had a very different shape and sound. I think we kind of got a whiff of just wanting to write more music with vocals. So yeah, that was kind of just exploring acoustic music and sadly that band doesn't play anymore, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. I, I um, found this great quote from you actually about this sound quote bridges the music from Clarence White and Ennio Morricone, which uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great quote. Um, and Clarence White. Yeah, it's a, it's a tall order that probably isn't true, but <laughs> yeah, I love Clarence White. Yeah, oh, he's great. I'm a fan of his brother, Roland, as well. Some of the, uh, yeah, dig into some of that Texas, uh, like Ridge Runner Records stuff is one of my uh, current obsessions, bluegrass wise. So, awesome. Um, yeah. No, 100%. And now you have a new record out, which when we first talked, or first engaged about, you know, on the, I mean, first conspired to talk. It's probably how I mean to say that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize sure. was was happening. I had missed it. I didn't see it. I had missed the email or whatever. But I was like, well, let's make sure I I've got my ducks in a row. And holy cow, he's got a new record <laughs> coming. And clicked order and then started listening to it. And it really kind of blew my mind. It is uh, that called the Painted oh, wow. Porch. And it is very different from December's material, just to tell everybody, get that out of the way. <laughs> but it's, I, I love it. Um, I was playing it for my wife today as I was listening to it again. And she was like, wow, that is not what I expected, but this is cool. I, was, <laughs> I listened Thank to you. listening to it the other day, you know, this one track, the augury just kind of, it got, I got a little oh, yeah. lifted out of my chair. Um, so yeah. Tell, tell us about this record. Um, it's got a little heavy background to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, well, it, you know, I consider myself a producer and a songwriter and a side person also. So a side person, I've always had that mindset in the Decembers too. Like I'm a principal member for sure and influence and you're asking who's writing what or whatever. But I think like a side person, like your job is to bring something new and inspired into the group, you know, even though I'm a member of the group. Um, and for me, when, I don't know, when the band started making a little bit of money and I was able to do this for a living, I just was like, well, I just want to do music all the time, you know, and, and in that you gain by doing side projects or you gain by recording on other people's records. For me, it wasn't about gaining playing scales, you know, it was like at this point, I'm like, I just want to record and make music, you know? So I say that because in that I consider, I don't, I don't know. It, it's heavy handed to say you're an art. It's hard for me to call myself an artist. Right. And, but in that, when I, I'll, when I get in that artist mindset as a musician, it allows me to create something that I don't quite know where it's headed. So it's, that's just a personal thing. I don't want someone to call me an artist. I don't care. It sounds arrogant. I just have to have that mind, that artist mindset. So that freeing mindset. So point being this record, um, was just about having, um, you know, a, a defined period of time. Cause I like to work quick too. That's another thing you can work on your solo record for years. And it's, it was just about, it was kind of cathartic. I'd lost a lot of friends like my dog had died that year <laughs> like like yeah. three friends had passed away that year i'd um uh gone through a, a divorce and 
it was around Christmas. And I think I realized that I actually have like somewhat of a high level of buy-in to the holidays. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to go to the studio. I, unfortunately, I, I produce out of a, a really nice recording studio here in Portland and make a lot of records for other people. And I just went in with no, with absolutely no music and sat down with either an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar and started recording stuff. And in three days had the, the, the bones of that record. Um, and that's why I think, I think it's a misnomer. I think I call it a guitar record. It's kind of not my friends. Like he made a jazz record, dude. <laughs> like he made something avant-garde. Yeah. It doesn't really sound like a guitar record. No, but I think it's a guitar. I call it a guitar record because that's where it started in my head. You know, that's where my mind, uh, went to when I was writing it. So, and it, and I wanted it to be instrumental and, compelling and a lot of it was a lot of it's atonal i think too which is like just sort of feeling sound so for all you deadheads out there it's probably the part where at a live show you go to the bathroom it's called drums in space (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm going to dispute that only slightly you're being modest in that it's it's um it gets weird you took a lot of acid at the dead shows and you you hung out during drums in space didn't you jonathan I hung out during drums in space, Chris. It's true. I did too. Truth be told. For me, it was just like pushing, pushing, using the studio, pushing sound, improving things, and then seeing what was there to come up with something on a, on a short time period. And it was pretty cathartic, but, and then just putting it out, you know, just getting it out and not thinking about it too much. And, and so that feels like art to me. Mark Rabot is on this record. I, I think that's worth pointing out to everybody. He is. Um, he's yeah. plays some acoustic and electric guitar. Is it scattered throughout, or is yeah. it on a particular tracks? It's on a few songs. Um, off the top of my head, I cannot remember what songs he's on. <laughs> that's fair. A little embarrassing. Um, but he, uh, yeah, I just actually, I don't, I've never met Mark, and I just love him. And I wrote his manager and she was like, sure, he'll do it. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Wow. <laughs> um, and still have not talked to him. He recently followed me on Twitter. That was cool. But um, yeah, I just, I just, and I just sent it to him and was like, just play on these songs and do whatever you want. Cause that's the spirit of this, you know? Oh, and um, I had a couple other collaborators, the drummers that are on there. Um, a guy named John Sherman, who plays in a band called Red Fang, who are a Portland stoner rock band. And then, um, a drummer named Dan Hunt, who used to tour with Nico Case, who's got more of like a Glenn Cauchy jazz rock approach to playing the drums. Who's an incredible percussionist. And then my friend Kyleen King did all the string arranging and performing on there. So that's it. Well, the uh, result is strong. Do you think Thanks, you could recommend a particular track? Could we play something for everybody before we descend into Grateful Deadland? Yeah, how about you play the layer of the wretched troglodyte? Ah, cool. So. Yeah, that's uh in fact, why don't we play that now and then we'll come back and talk about some hardcore Grateful Dead stuff. Awesome.
yeah, I love Thank this you. love this record, uh, the Painted Porch. I'm excited to drop a needle on it. I will say um, for everybody Thank out you. there that the if you get it through Bandcamp, the proceeds for the Bandcamp sales are being donated to the COVID-19 Oregon Musicians Relief Fund through the Jeremy Wilson Foundation. Yep. So I will link to the Bandcamp yep. for everybody to find that on the website. But it's chrisfunk.bandcamp.com. They, they should be able to figure it out. Um, and it's yep. awesome. And it's so. also out on, uh, uh, we're doing a pre-order on vinyl also, if you want to grab it. And 100% of those proceeds are going to the same organization. I'm actually donating all the money to the Jeremy Wilson Foundation. That's very um, cool. And that's called Jealous Butcher, Jealous Butcher Records, if you want to get the vinyl. Feel so compelled. I am compelled. I am compelled. Um, big record collector here. Excellent. But, um, so speaking of records, so real quick before we get, well, this will lead us into some Grateful Dead talk. Um, I mentioned it earlier. Sure. Uh, the cover of Road Jimmy on the B side for the January hymn single. Yeah. Um, was that your idea, or is Colin a, a deadhead too? That was Colin's idea. Um, I think Colin is a deadhead now, and his wife, Carson Ellis, who's our illustrator, has been a deadhead for a long time. Oh, wow. So I think, you know, I always liken the Grateful Dead to a band that you're eventually going to like. (laughs) If you're a real musician, (laughs) quote unquote, real musician, or if you're a musician or you just like music. Um, And I think it, it just took Colin that long to get there through you know his listening was actually kind of similar to mine he grew up in montana um away from a lot of immediate culture you know but in his purview or or like a more diverse even though the dead were probably certainly in montana for whatever reason it just didn't grab him um but his wife is a total deadhead and i know colin digs the dead now and um so he brought it in to do and that was era recording the King is Dead, which was um, our record that was sort of our get back to the barn record. And I think really this next level of kind of folk music experimentation with um, the Decemberists. And um, every record we sort of like, because we're all such record collectors and record fans, I think we always have to have like a marching order for going into a record. Like this is going to be this record, you know, which could be viewed as disingenuous, but... You know, reality is we're all people from the suburbs or, you know, the we're the results of our, our record collections, you know, and we do it as like tributes to music we love, you know. So King is Dead was had, we recorded it on a farm in a barn. It was like Neil Young meets the dead meets a little bit of REM in there somehow, which I think makes sense to us. And yeah. um, so he, he brought in that cover of uh, Ro Jimmy. Uh, you know, I think that makes total sense. I, I was reading something just today and they quoted uh michael stipe saying that rem was a uh, a folk rock band uh at a time when there weren't yeah. any folk rock bands so i agree with that i mean peter buck that was that was the beginning of me understanding the mandolin to be totally honest you know ah, cool um all those yeah yeah he definitely uh, sure. pushed that right out front for a lot of people at that time so yeah so yeah, for sure Back to back to Grateful Dead. Then, um, I mean, I'm sure you listened to lots of things, but do you, when you when you go for Grateful Dead, what do you reach for? I vacillate between. Uh, first of all, I've I noticed it's kind of seasonal with me. Like right now, I start listening to the Dead more because, like Oregon in the summertime, 
feels like the Grateful Dead to me, <laughs> just like my own my own uh, theater. I think of the mind. I, um, I hear that. There's a reason for that too. I hear that a lot, actually. You hear that a lot? Yeah, yeah, I do. Summertime vibes. Yeah, a yeah. lot. Of people, I mean, maybe or it was the like different summer different, tours, right? Different dead for different seasons is another thing I get a lot. So, um, yeah, I think. Yeah, there's this event here called the Oregon Country Fair, mm-hmm. uh, which is just outside of Eugene, and there's a famous show, I assume you know, uh, in Venita, Oregon. Best show ever. called Sunshine Daydream. Yeah, so that was on the grounds of where the Oregon Country Fair is still hosted, and I go I go every year and I play music there and camp out, and I've been going to the fair for a long time. And the fair is like still Grateful Dead Central. Phil played there last year. I got to meet him. That was super cool. Um, Bill Kreutzman will camp out there occasionally. Shay Ray, who was Jerry's chef for a long time, has a booth there, and uh, Ray's dead now. But there's a lot of dead around Eugene and um, a lot of mythology around those shows. They they played there twice in the parking lot, um, or which is a giant field, an acreage. <laughs> right. Um, so going going to the country fair always just feel, it's like hot summer. It looks like you know it just looks like uh, you know Ken Kesey used to go there and hang out. I met Ken and Babs in Eugene. I was friends with Babs' son. So it just has that like dead feeling to me somehow. Wow. And what I always imagined like in the Midwest, going to Deer Creek had that like dead feeling, that like summertime country, like we're going north from San Francisco. Like I could just like feel that, you know, going to Deer Creek and then feeling it later going to the country fair and living in Eugene. So I start reaching for, um, I mean, there's so much, it's crazy how many great uh, dead shows are on on Spotify, on YouTube now. So I play a lot of the, um, I kind of vacillate. I mean, there's a part of me that loves um, Pigpen era stuff. And then I also loved it. I also love Brent Midland. And then I also love when, when, when I kind of mark them by the keyboard players. <laughs> so I love Keith. I love, I love all the keyboard players. I loved it when uh, Vince Welnick and, and Bruce Hornsby were in the band. That was such a cool period of time too, you know, because it like lifted the band up again, I think. So I don't know. It goes all over the place of what I listen to. They're doing every Friday night, they're showing a concert. And so they re-aired the giant stadium 91 show. And it was just, oh nice. which is summer 91 is when I first saw them. So this was prime uh-huh. into my, into my youth and Bruce and yeah. Vince together, uh, was, yeah, that yeah. was that was a thing, and watching Jerry and Bruce play it off was each killing. other, um, yeah, was just I mean, it was it was killing. He was so jazzed to play with Bruce; you could just see it. Um, and I think I think like Bruce too. You know, I mean, oh yeah, no offense. That's that's why we go listen to Grateful Dead is because some some shows were better than others, and the ones that weren't good for various reasons. I think like Bruce Hornsby just brought this level of he's kind of like a respected outside musician and kind of, I would assume injected some real joy into Jerry's playing that I felt like was real. You know, the band, the band just started rocking then I felt like, um, but I also listen, I also like listening to, um, the studio records too. Like my favorite era of dead studio records are, um, Terrapin station, which I said earlier. Um, I, I love go to heaven. (laughs) 
because I love the song <laughs> Althea so much. That's great. And I love the production on those records. I think they those were produced by the same guy that produced Fleetwood Mac. And I know that a lot of people are like, that's cheesy dead. But I don't know. There's just something about those records that, like, as a fan of audio engineering. And I also love uh, Cats Down Under the Stars, that album. I go to that album a lot. That's just a cool sounding. Like, those records, like, Jerry's voice is, like, in perfect pitch, you know. It's like, he just sounds amazing. And he started, like, really cranking on the envelope filter which is like signature sound you know yeah for cats those records a lot jerry apparently just like was down in a hole mixing and remixing and mixing and mixing and mixing on that one himself but uh but the result the result pays uh in great dividends and then yeah the keith olsen yeah uh grateful dead is is a hell of a thing yeah Um, keith olsen yes and and it is it it is spurned by some but but those same people probably spent plenty of time spurning Fleetwood Mac and you know whether yeah you could get sick of those Fleetwood Mac songs but there's a reason they were such big hits they they, they nailed it <laughs> on those white records yeah. so I think you know those people I mean there's like these different eras of the dead that people seem to fight over which I think is fun uh, and interesting you know there's people that like Pigpen they don't like Brent Midland. That's when I started listening to the, to the live dead was Brent Midland era. So those are, those are like my memories of seeing the dead for the first time was with Brent and then go on and on, you know, you can go back further into acid tests or whatever, <laughs> they were even more <laughs> experimental and not really playing any music or were more of a jug band or, you know, it's, it, they're so diverse and they're such a um, career group and still going, you know, so in some ways and, um, that's that makes it just means they're doing cool music that people care about and were yeah i will take all of this input and gin up some sort of mix i'm going to give a little spoiler we have an episode coming in july that is brent centric so uh not to say i won't play some brent this time but uh i probably won't stay exclusively in that zone but yeah you should check out the episode one of the episodes coming in july killer thank you very much for spending some time talking with me yeah Awesome. And, uh, you know, I'll tell yep. every, remind everybody uh, after the bit where they can find the record. And hopefully we can, things will clear up. And next year we can get you back on the road and see some more shows. Yeah, that's our, that's our plan. Reschedule for next year. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. All right, so that was so fun to talk to Chris, and I want to thank him again for coming on and sharing with all of us. As you heard during the interview, his new record, The Painted Porch, is really cool and not at all like his other groups. Again, you can find that at chrisfunk.bandcamp.com or via Jealous Butcher Records. As always, you can find the links in the show notes. Now, I did get another treat from Chris for you. We have here his version of What's Become of the Baby from the Nugs.tv Live From Out There streaming festival, part of the May 5th tribute to the work of Garcia and Hunter. I hope you dig it.
Yeah, so that's nice and weird, but very listenable, I think. Speaking of weird, I've got some Grateful Dead on deck that I think will fit that bill. We're going to start at the beginning. January 1966, so it's not quite the beginning, but it's pretty damn early. Things are a bit choppy and odd as they were at the tests. Yeah, we're going acid tests here, guys. And then we flash forward, not to Vanita 72 as discussed in the conversation, because that's out there. That's a, There's a full official release of that but August 24th, 1972, from the Berkeley Community Theater. I think this will suit you all just fine. So buckle up, dead freaks. Things are going to get stranger. Until next time, be well. There it is, the sneaky little rascal. Lurking beneath that toadstool. Come on out. You're just desserts awaiting the long table of dawn.
one of these days you know your father will be gone but dad don't dad don't have no mercy in this land
Doesn't matter. 